This morning we're going to be hearing from the Word of God as we turn to the first chapter of Ephesians. And I want to invite you uh, to join with me as, as either you read with me or follow along reading the scriptures as we see it on the, on the prompters, or that you would uh, enjoy the scriptures by opening your own Bibles and leaving them open. Because the very power of God's word is not in its preaching, it is in the Holy Spirit who illuminates our hearts to understand that all that God has given us. And so in this particular verse, uh, we're going to be reading chapter 1, verse 3, through verse 14. Um, the thing that is so surprising about this is that though in our Bibles it is split up in a number of sentences, um, Paul as he was writing this letter, has one sentence that lasts all the way from the beginning of verse 3 all the way to the end of verse 14. And so as you, you think about this passage, it's, it's incredible to think about that this is one singular thought that stretches from verse 3 to 14. One singular thought. And so I invite you to join with me as we hear the word of God this morning. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in, in him. We have, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment and to bring to unity or bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the will, purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, as we study your word this morning and we turn our hearts to understand that which you reveal, we understand, first of all, that it is not by human understanding or wisdom that God's word lives in our hearts. It is by the power of your spirit illuminating these truths. And so we pray that you would help us as those who hear your word 
and study it to not only understand the depths and the heights and the widths of the love of God, but we would begin to dig deeply into the salvation that you have given us, that we might drink deeply of Christ this morning. And in so imbibing our lives in your word, that we would be transformed in our inner man, our inner heart, our inner woman. That we would become the men and women of God you have intended before the creation of the world. And for that we humbly pray in the name of Christ our Lord. And the people of God said together, I, th I find it just overwhelming to try to begin this series more than anything else in talking about this particular passage because it is filled with so much theology that, that I could actually take this passage and we could preach on a series on it for the next six months. Do, do you have a watch on by any chance? Well, if you do, um, I, I'm sorry, I will try to keep this as brief as possible, but for your benefit, I hope and pray that you, you would allow the time to be something forgotten as you, you drink deeply of God's love for you. I, I pray with all my heart that the purpose of this letter would become resultant in the change of life that you need in order to be Christ's disciple. Because what Paul is really talking about here is he's beginning the opening of this letter and the first three chapters of this book in talking about what we would call doctrine. But it's not dead doctrine. It's living word of God in you. And so in light of that, when you begin the study of this and as you, you look at this passage, this one sentence that goes from verse 3 to 14, you're overwhelmed by the very first thing that he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why is that so important? Well, please notice in other translation, he says, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here in the NIV, we, it is translated praise. Well, well, why is that such an issue? Well, it's because we don't understand the word blessed. And maybe we don't understand the word praise. You see, what really Paul is doing is he's drawing the attention of the Ephesians to something that they would not recognize in their life if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. And the word blessed, as you think of it, in its meaning today, it is literally to speak well of. And so when you hear the word praise or bless, what we're doing is we're speaking well of. Now, let me, I want you to know, I've heard some of you speak well of things. I, I've, I've even spoken well myself. For instance, I went to a local restaurant and, and ordered some banana pancakes. Those were the best banana pancakes you could order. Now, some of you are going to be thinking about that the whole next hour. Do you know why? Because I have just blessed those banana pancakes in your mind. I have spoken well of them. And because of that, you are now drawn to this idea, you know, I don't think I've had good banana pancakes. I want to know more about that. Well, that in the same way, Paul is doing this about God. He's doing this about the God you have come to know in Jesus Christ. And he says, blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that so important? Because as you go through all of these verses, you will see that God is mentioned as what he has done out of his great love for you. But more importantly, God has done what he has done for you because he's God. And it reveals something about who he is, regardless of what you have benefited from. And so in light of that, there are three things that I want to bring to your attention as we look at this passage and try to outline it. First, I want you to understand that when he gives speaking well or blessing the Father or praising the Father, he's praising God for what we understand to be election and adoption. That's the first thing. The second thing is he's speaking about praising or blessing God or speaking well of God final reconciliation that we're part of his family. And then thirdly, of God because of the assurance that he gives to believers of the heritage to which they have received in Jesus Christ. First one, and that is he says praise for the election and adoption. Look at verse 3 very carefully because as you read through this, you can understand how powerful these words are. There is not a wasted utterance to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What does he mean? Well, you have to remember that before you came to faith in Christ, you were separated from God by your sin. You could not know him or love him or even touch the things of the spiritual life in regards to a relationship with God because you were lost in your sins, separated, forever denying God, fleeing from him, Worried, concerned of the wrath that is yet to come upon those who reject the God who created them. And so when Paul writes and he says that first we are to remember how God in his great love for us has blessed us with everything that we did not have before. These heavenly things. What heavenly things? Well, remember when Jesus was with, with a, a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee? In chapter 3 of John's Gospel, and Jesus begins to say to John, or to this Nicodemus man, you must be born from above. What does he mean? Nicodemus didn't even understand it. He said, how can a man be born again? How can he be born? He's a born of a woman. What are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus says, you're a teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these simple things. And how much more there was to hear of Christ from Christ of the spiritual things of God and so when you hear those words that we have been blessed with the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing it speaks to that appropriateness that God has given you that you might know him and you might begin a relationship with him through Jesus Christ that you did not have before but it's not just that if he goes on he says for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. What is he saying? Is he saying that, that we had no choice? Not at all. When he speaks about God choosing us, he speaks about God's adoption of us into his family. And it's this that's the emphasis. It's not that God chose you, but that the purpose of his choosing is to make you holy and blameless. Do you hear that? What man or woman can be holy or blameless before God? Only the one who has come to know the gospel and the power of the cross and the substitutionary work that Christ did for them there 
on Calvary. And that through Christ, through Christ alone, they are now included in God's family. They have been adopted into his great and glorious church. I don't know about you, but I, I think about those who have adopted children in their lives, and I've asked them many times, I've said, you know, I've often wondered, do you think you love one child more than the other? Maybe you love one child because they're, they're from a certain region or they, they have certain memories attached to them. And every time these families talk to me, they say, oh, no. I was talking with an Anglican priest in this area who has adopted a child. And, and I said, is there a real difference between the other four children you have and this one child? And they looked at me and said, we don't see any difference whatsoever. We love this child more than we could ever imagine. Why? Because the question we often think is being adopted is being a second-class citizen. Not in the Roman world. When Paul uses this term about being adopted or chosen, he's speaking about those, those Romans in his day who would oftentimes adopt children into their families. And when those children were adopted, they were given every legal right to the family titles that any child born of the family would be given. And so when Paul writes to us and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has chosen you to be holy and blameless. He's speaking about your being a part of a family and made part of that family through the power of Christ. And because of that work of Christ on your behalf, God sees you not as some orphan or stepchild. He sees you as his child and has made you holy, separate from others, specifically dedicated to his glory and blameless, meaning that no one can look at you as if you're some odd character part of the church. I know, I know. You look around this room and you say, well, there's some really odd characters in this church. Well, let me tell you, because of Christ, they're a part of his family. They've been adopted. Notice how many times he says he's doing, done this to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. What is he meaning by that? He's talking about this God who acts not that he might elicit from us a love for him, but he does so out of the very character of who God is. God doesn't need any of us. And yet he has chosen to include you. The most powerful thing about being elected is this word that we struggle with. It, it deals with that being chosen. Some of you are still kind of chewing on that. Well, didn't I choose Christ? Yes, you did. You did choose Christ. But you only chose him because God chose you. Amen. So what do you mean by that? Didn't I accept Christ as Lord and Savior? Yes, you had to do that. You had to come to a place where you cried out to Christ to forgive you of your sins and come into your heart. But you only did that because God had chosen you. Well, what do you mean by this chosenness? We're speaking about this overwhelming love of God that drew you. That when you heard the gospel and you heard of God's love and the sacrifice that Christ did on the cross, you could not resist coming and putting your faith in Christ alone and no one else. We call it irresistible grace. 
and it's that conviction that when you and I, regardless of how well or poorly we share the gospel, when someone responds to Jesus, they do not because of my eloquent of speech or my persuasiveness of selling, but they respond to Jesus because they are drawn by the Father. Remember what Jesus says in the Gospels? All that those who come to me come to me because the Father draws them. And so my friends, this morning, if you stand in the pleasure of Christ and you, you enjoy the relationship with him, it's not because you're smart or pretty or come from the right family or were born in a Presbyterian home. It's because you have come to know Christ and you've been irresistibly drawn to him. The second thing that Paul talks about in this passage, and I wish I could go on because there's so much more to say here. Good news, the rest of the letter of Ephesians un unpacks this. But here's the second thing that Paul really emphasizes in this passage, and that is our redemption and our reconciliation. Look at verse 7. He unpacks it in such powerful ways. He writes, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure in which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under what head even Christ. Well, what does he mean? Well, first notice it's in him, in Christ, in him. In Christ. Why is that repeated? It's because it is only through Christ that we are able to have this relationship with God the Father. There are many people who, when you talk to them and you say, well, are you, are you someone who is a practicing religionist? <laughs> Most people say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean, I'm a Christian? It means you attend a church? Does that mean that you're a Big Mac if you go to McDonald's? Or you're a deep dish pizza if you go to Pizza Hut? No, there's, there's something much more different about that. We're talking about a redemption. We're talking about someone who was lost, who was cut off from God, who was separated by their own sins, and through Christ they have been redeemed. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up in South Carolina, this word becomes powerful for me when I think about the ways in which when we were young, we tried to gain money by collecting bottles thrown out of cars on the side of the road. Y'all don't remember this, do you? You're too young for this. We'd go down the road, it was Pocket Road where I lived in Darlington County, and we would literally pick up Pepsi-Cola bottles and Coca-Cola bottles and take them to the store. And as we brought them into the store, we would usually use a wagon because the more bottles you brought, the more money you were going to get for those bottles. And so we turn these, we take these nasty, stinky, mud-ridden bottles that had been thrown into the ditch, and we would collect them and we would bring them in a wagon to the store and bring them to the clerk and he would count out the bottles and he would give us, now get this, this big money, he would give us five cents a bottle. Now for those of you who are alive today, you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of money. Not. But in a kid's world, five cents in that day would buy you a hot ball. 
or a pack of gum, which was more valuable than anything you could imagine. And so as we would take these bottles, I always wondered, what happened to those bottles after you took them? Well, lo and behold, I got a tour of a bottler later in my life, and you know what they do with those bottles? They take them and they run them through a, a washing machine, so to speak. They literally put them on a rack, and the water shoots into these bottles of soap and a, and a cleanser and a antiseptic and, a, and everything else that would take all the grungy, nasty things out of the bottle and produce a bottle that was as clean, if not cleaner, than one that was just made. And then they fill it back up with Coke and put a cap on it. That's what God did for you in Christ. You see, you were filthy. You were separate from God in such ways that your lives were filled with things even now you were ashamed of. And through Jesus Christ, God has cleansed you in such powerful ways that if you were to go to God right now and say, God, remember when I was a young man, or I wore a younger woman's clothes. Remember that sin I confessed to you so long ago about whatever it is? You know what God says? I choose to remember it no more. It's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You are clean. Do you believe that? In him, you were redeemed. Through the blood of Christ, you were forgiven. And the most amazing thing is then you begin to say, well, is it just about me? No, no, it's much more, much more than just about you and the forgiveness of your sins. It is a truth that God has now blessed you with a knowledge and a wisdom of what he intended to do when he decided to send Christ into the world. This really what is what Paul is talking about when he talks about in verse 9, and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. What does that mean? It means that God is at work not only redeeming your life, but he is out to redeem the world and everyone who would turn and believe in him. That God is not in the business of condemning the world. He is in the business of bringing salvation to those who were lost from him and drawing them back to his family and including them in his own parade of those who have come to know the banner of Christ and follow it. And so whether you're Baptist or Methodist or Roman Catholic, we believe with all of our hearts that anyone who believes that God raised Jesus from the dead and professes him as Lord and Savior, they are saved. They are redeemed by the power of God's blood in such measure that this church of Christ goes beyond these walls. It goes beyond this nation. It is a world-encompassing movement that God is accomplishing, not us, 
God is accomplishing by calling men and women out of the darkness of their lives and into the light of Christ and redeeming and washing and cleansing them in such ways that there's going to be an end. And that end comes when everyone who will have believed in Christ comes to that faith and the end of this age will draw to a close. And it speaks to the power of the church to proclaim Christ because we are united with Christ. We have nothing else to do but proclaim him to a world, unbelieving world, God-resisting world, God-denying world. We have the power to proclaim the only way of salvation, the only way people can find forgiveness the only way they can be redeemed. And then the end will come. What will happen then? Well, it says it, in the end, God's purpose is to bring all things in heaven on earth together under one head, Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Even those who will not yield to Christ. I think about that. I think about Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. I think about the leaders of the world around this world and how they, they draw upon power and they, they live for the power of their office or their position and they want people to bow to them and follow their directions. But there is coming a day when everyone, every ruler, every man, every woman will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate goal. This is the mystery of God that is being revealed. Quite powerful, isn't it? That ultimately Christ will be exalted above all the nations. Thirdly and finally this morning as we go through this, Paul not only talks about the praise of God, that he is a God who elects and adopts, but he not only redeems and reconciles us to himself, but please notice that this God that we worship this morning is a God who wants you to have an assurance of his work on your behalf and the heritage to which you have received, the inheritance that you have now taken part in. What do I mean by this? Well, look in verse 11 through 14. And here is where many people reading this passage get stuck and they really get disturbed in their hearts. In verse 11, it says, In him we were also chosen, having been, uh-oh, predestined, according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. In verse 13, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What does he mean? I had a woman call me this past month on the telephone. It was the most unique pastoral call I've ever had in my life. It really was. Um, she called and she said, I'm, I'm attending a church and I'm worshiping and, and the pastor is talking about predestination. And I said, oh, well, that's an easy one. 
I'm glad some of you got that joke. And I said, what is it about predestination that bothers you? He says, well, there are some people who are predestined for heaven and other people who are predestined for hell. And I said, well, that's, that's one way people think of it, but predestination is never, never a doctrine where we think of God as being predetermined. And she looked at me, or she, I could tell looking over the phone, she looked at me, she paused, and she said, what in the world are you talking about? I said, listen, when Paul writes this passage in the first chapter of Ephesians, he's talking about a loving, benevolent God who from the very creation of the world had determined that those who believed in Christ would not believe in Christ because he could see down the years and see, well, I'm going to have the gospel preached in Mooresville, North Carolina, and and Robert Howard's going to hear it, and he's going to believe in Christ, so I'm going to choose him. No, no, no. It is that before you were ever born, before the sun and the moon and the stars were ever formed, God had predetermined that he would send Christ into the world and make this appeal to men and women so that through that appeal, there would be many who would become saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That they would come to faith in Christ because of what God initiated in sending Christ into the world. Isn't that what happened to you? Notice how Paul puts it, and it's very careful how he writes this. He says first, he says, in order that we, in verse 12, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Well, who were the first to hope in Christ? Wasn't it the apostles? Yeah. And so he's writing to the Ephesians and he's saying, just as we who first hope in Christ and saw him and beheld him and followed him and loved him and believed in him, just as we did that because of God's great pleasure in drawing us to Jesus Christ, so too now has God drawn you. And so predestination is not, not a game where we try to figure out who's in heaven and who's not. Predestination speaks of an assurance. An assurance that God has from the very beginning called out to men and women to repent of their sins and believe in Christ and that if you have been one of those individuals it is because God has poured out his grace and mercy upon you. You say, well, didn't he pour out that grace and mercy to everyone? Absolutely. We call it, in the terms of theology, we call it general calling and effective calling. It's when the gospel is proclaimed and people hear it and, and for some they hear the gospel and they say, you know, I just don't need this. This doesn't fit me. I don't understand. Or I just don't want it. I deal with that constantly as a pastor. I'll go and I'll talk to someone and I'll explain the gospel to them in such a way and I'll say, do you understand what Christ has done for you? And they say, yes, I understand it fully. Would you like to receive Christ? And they go, no. 
And when I say why, it's because I don't want to give up something in my life that I know I'll have to give up if I follow Christ. You see, it's completely their choice. But occasionally, there are people who hear the gospel and I'll ask them, do you understand what God has done for you? And they say, yes, I do. And I ask them, would you like to receive Christ as a Savior? And they say, please, help me. What must I do to be saved? How do you explain the difference? Paul says it's God. It's God the Father drawing people. You know the most amazing thing is if you read through the Gospel of John and you struggle with this doctrine of election, the most powerful thing will happen to you. You will begin to hear Jesus in his teaching talk about there are sheep in other places that must hear my voice. That no one comes to me unless the Father draw them. That all those who God has given me, I will not lose. And you begin to hear over and over again about this overwhelming power of God to save. And that gospel is still going out today. And the question for you is not, who will be in heaven or hell? But where will you be? And what will you do in answering the question, who do you believe Jesus is? When Paul writes this passage, he is more concerned about those who have come to faith in Christ that they will understand with all wisdom and knowledge the mysteries of God and find assurance that their salvation is not based upon their ability. That their salvation is based upon what God has done for them. Well, what has God done? He's made you holy and righteous through Christ. He's adopted you as his child. He's redeemed you from your sin and death. He has forgiven you sins. He has revealed the mystery of Christ coming into the world. He has drawn you to the hope of Christ. He has marked and sealed you with the Holy Spirit. And the question that you and I must ask ourselves from that point on is does this change the way we live? Am I changed by this good news of Jesus Christ? Am I transformed? Does my life produce the fruit of that kind of belief that God has been graciously merciful to me to the pleasure of his will to the praise of his glorious grace I hope and pray this week you'll begin to open the book of Ephesians there is so much more about this that is so powerful so glorious about our God so magnificent to gaze upon this salvation that he has accomplished on your behalf. And the whole purpose of the letter is that you 
not just know this in your head, but it becomes part of your identity as you are united in Christ now. You are united with I don't know if I really understood this until I got married. I got married at the age of 30. <laughs> you know they say w youth is wasted on the young, right? You know that? I, I believe wisdom comes with age because I thank God I got married at 30. I don't think I could have remained married if I got married at 20. I don't think any woman in the world could have put up with me at my 20s. But I will never forget after that service, as I got in the car with this cute little redhead, and we were driving away from that wonderful day of celebration where we were marking our marriage as husband and wife, and I looked down at everything we had accomplished that day, and I just thought, well, that was fun. What's next? No, I didn't think that way at all. <laughs> Looked at that young, pretty girl realized I was united with her. I couldn't blow my nose in privacy anymore. That everything I am, everything I hope to be, was now bound to her, and she was bound to me. Some things had to change. No, I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about me. Some things had to change if I was going to be united with her. Let me give you an example. I don't think I ever washed a piece of clothing in my life. Someone had to wash. I, I don't think I ever washed a dish. In a, in a sink. I just put it up on the sink for someone else to do it. I, I dare say that I don't think I hung up a shirt in a closet or a coat on a hook. But as I began to be united with her, I began to realize that if our lives were going to be glorifying God, I would have to copy some things that she was doing. I would have to hang my slacks up, hang my coat up, clean up my life. The same is true for Christ. And that's the point that Paul is writing about this morning. You are united with Christ. And if that doesn't change your life, then you don't understand the gospel. But if you do know this, then you are crying out to God, Oh God, help me be transformed into his image. Would you pray with me? Our gracious Father, as we open this powerful book, and we've had an introduction last week into its glory, it is no wonder that men and women who have studied this book before us have showered this book with praise to the extent that they have 
declared of how glorious it reveals our Father in heaven. The wonder of our salvation and the practical, life-changing attitudes that are required for anyone who would be united in him. And so as we go through the study and as we go deeper, we pray, Father, we pray because we know that we don't have the power to live the Christian life without Jesus. And it is no mistake after speaking these words from chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that we find in the very 14th verse that Paul immediately begins to pray. And he writes and he says, For this reason, ever since I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks and remembering you in my prayers. Well, what does he pray? He prays that we would all who have heard the gospel take this being united to Jesus so convincingly in our lives that we will never live the way we once did ever again. That our marriages would be seen through the eyes of God and not ourselves. That our work would be seen through the eyes of God and not ourselves. That our church would be seen through the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ and not whether it makes us feel happy or sad or meets my needs. And so for that reason, Father, open the book to me. Make it live in my life. That the word of God would not have, would not have an effect that leaves me cold to you. But that it would warm my heart and cause me to yearn to be more and more like Jesus. We ask and we pray it in Christ's name. And the people of God said together,